You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. And what we're really talking about is vesting the sovereignty of Australia in the people. But actually the most extraordinary and beautiful thing is we are going to vest it in 65,230 years of history. That's an amazing step to take. And again, I think it's only going to change us in positive ways. Good evening, everybody. A really warm welcome to the Wheeler Centre um, and the opening fifth estate of the year. It's such a thrill to be back there. Yeah. Oh. That's really lovely, thank you. Um, And especially thrilling because of our guest tonight. Uh, I couldn't be more thrilled, in fact. Of course, um, Craig Foster's known to you all, um, a great advocate for human rights, especially refugees, a former captain of the Australian soccer team, and now current co-chair of the Australian Republic Movement, Uh, Please welcome our 419th Socceroo. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm in a little bit of trouble this evening because, of course, the Socceroos are playing just down the road here. Uh, It's a friendly, yeah. Which everyone has reminded me. But, uh, look, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you and to be chatting with you, Sally, and good evening, everyone. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Uh, This is the place to be. You can get down to Marvel any time, right? Um, (laughs) uh, I I, want to begin because uh, when we invited you, you were the chair of the Australian Republic Mm. Movement and some of you may well know um, or have picked up that I said co-chair and just a few days ago, just last week, uh, uh, the uh, second chair, Nova Peris, former Olympian in two different sports, I think our only Mm. gold medalist in in two sports, Mm. first Aboriginal woman in the federal parliament as Senator for the Northern Territory, was uh, named as your co-chair. You, uh, it was a condition, am I correct, of your appointment to chair that you get a female co-chair, is that right? Essentially, yeah. Not a written, formal condition, but... um you know, it's a cause, a movement that I've always been passionate about, felt very strongly about, since at least the time I started playing for Australia in my mid-twenties. And at that time started to really think about more deeply what I was representing. You know, it's a moment when you pull on the Socceroos jersey or any national team or indeed with Nova, an Olympic uniform, and march onto the world stage to then compete, you naturally start to consider, what does this mean? What am I, who am I representing? Is, is it just my family, my friends? What is the nature of the country and Australia? Uh, and therefore, having spoken in 99 as a soccer mm-hmm. at that time um, uh, for the Republic movement, you know, I was delighted to have been asked to come back to step forward into a leadership role. But the first thing that I said, well, to Peter, who of course, uh, Fitzsimons, who's the former chair, was that um, equality has to underpin the organisation at every level, beginning from the top. Mm. And therefore, I think it was appropriate either to have, to follow Peter, to have a female chair, uh, would have been my preference, or to have co-chairs. Mm. Uh, and I was pleased a couple of weeks ago we had a special general meeting to change the constitution of the organisation and to bring, I think, the whole movement forward where we're now able to say reasonably that we represent some of the really key values that a new republic is about. Well, that's all the practice you're going to need, isn't it, to uh, make this country a republic? You've already changed one constitution. How difficult can it be? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, it's a pretty blokey... It's been a pretty blokey um, kind of place. I was remembering some of the former chairs at Thomas Keneally, Malcolm yeah. Turnbull. Ian Chappell, I'd forgotten. Was, was a, Ian Chappell yeah, chair? I think so. I think wow, so. I didn't know yeah, that. yeah. Um, so it's a, that's a, a, a wonderful thing. Interesting, of course, that you're both athletes. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I, was, um, I was 
listening actually to a speech, a really great speech that you gave last March, I think, at the Australian Press Club on Australia's place in the world. Mm. And I, I sort of want to open up this conversation with just quoting just a couple of sentences from okay. that speech that I really, uh, really loved. A bit depressing, but I love <laughs> them. Uh, We're a nation unwilling to accept our responsibility to the world, and yet a people so desperate to have pride in who we are. Perhaps that's why we cling to our international sporting achievements. We long to excel as a nation. Um, I wonder if we can sort of start this by you mm. just speaking to that, um, that, that quote mm. a little bit. So I think this year is one of the most important... I'm trying to think how I can characterise the period of time Certainly in my life, what's happening this year with the discussions, conversations we're having as Australians and as Australia, uh, and putting aside several hundred years of denialism about the foundation and the birth of Australia post-first uh, contact, uh, is incredibly inspiring and immensely important. And the reason is because we have a blind spot at the centre of our national psyche. And I was writing a piece actually the other day for a magazine to come out around the coronation, which is in only about five weeks' time, mm. right? So an important moment in a year when First Nations have to carry, uh, you know, the, the majority of public space and to which we're, I'm extremely sensitive and, and respectful. But the coronation is going to occur first time in 70 years and we need to talk about that and it just occurred to me that I think the vast majority of Australia as tortured as these conversations are because we it has taken so long for us to get here um, we are deeply inspired by actually being able to see the courage to actually have these conversations now. And First Nations have done such an extraordinary job in recent years and carried the burden to normalise terms like decolonisation and invasion and things 20 years ago that uh, people in the public domain would have been excommunicated for talking about. I mean, from media, uh, you know, and, and, um, and demonised. Now these concepts are things that are everyday, they're no longer exceptional, and we can talk about these terms freely between us. And I feel a deep sense, great sense of liberation from that. Like just a, a release, a relief actually. And I think we all want to love and respect our First Nations, but um, the, the, Australia hasn't been able to come to the table together in an equal way because we couldn't recognise that the country was stolen. And I see this in particular because of my work in the refugee space. And so going back through history, which I referenced in that mm -hmm. press club speech, talking about the Immigration Restriction Act and about the Yellow Peril, you know, around the Second World War and then post that and how periodically Australian Prime Ministers and governments and MPs have been able to trigger the Australian population against a particular group as though they're going to steal what we have. Mm -hmm. And that is the rhetoric used, for example, against refugees. Well, these people are coming here as welfare cheats or they're coming here as criminals. Or, so we can very easily be made to fear other people and feel that they're going to take this extraordinary life that we have. And I just wonder whether that fear of having our own country stolen is actually predicated on the fact that we've never dealt with the fact that we stole it. Yeah? And so once we're having these conversations, and what we're finding, I'm finding anyway, and I, and I think from watching Australia broadly, and we, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit behind about how Australia's dealing with this, and I'm actually, I think Australia's doing quite an extraordinary job at the moment, because when it comes to the voice referendum, you can't underestimate the, the gravity of what we're actually talking about mm. here. And it's 235 years of avoiding it. And I think in many respects, actually, we're doing a hell of a job. And of course, there's some pushbacks and we have the diversionary tactics and all these things, but Australia even now see through that, as we've seen in, different in recent elections. 
And so we've come a very, very long way. And when we talk about this, republic.org.au, in the last quarter of a century, we're a, we're a very different country today, able to have conversations that couldn't be uh, prosecuted back in the late 90s. Uh, and so I, I think the future is extraordinarily bright. And in some ways, the, the challenge that the Republic has is to frame what that looks like, mm. to frame a vision of what we are. And we can say, we can talk about our multiculturalism and being together and walking this path with First Nations, but it's actually so profoundly important and beautiful that as the most articulate person actually can't really capture what we can become when we walk together with First Nations, because we can actually genuinely love and respect and know their culture, which becomes ours. And we don't know what 65,000 years is going to do for the country <laughs> mm. because we've always been like that, you know, and, and, and the racism that's underpinned that and it's all been about just move on without dealing with it. Dealing with it now is, one, is the most important moment in Australian history since... Well, I can't, I can't recall something. There hasn't been a successful referendum in yours or my lifetime, of course. There's um, some very peculiar Australian resistance yeah. uh, in referendums, which mm. must, uh, you know, send a chill up the spine of, well, everybody that cares about the, obviously, the voice and, and, mm -hmm. and the republic. Um, the, the cost of failure to the Republic movement of the voice referendum, mm. I mean, how catastrophic would it be? A lot of us are really worried about that happenstance um, because the, 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 I think our worry is equal to our desire and our feeling about the importance and, and the wondrous step forward that it would be, which automatically and naturally makes us very concerned about the opposite. But I feel very uh, positive about it um, because, for a number of reasons. But I think Australia is ready and the public conversation doesn't always capture the private feeling. We've seen that very clearly. The popular media now almost invariably doesn't capture the real feeling, certainly when it comes to elections. Uh, and therefore, I think uh, Thomas and, and Megan Davis and uh, Marcia Langton and the like are doing the right thing by going directly to the people and having grassroots conversations. And I think they're carrying the conversation in, in a quite brilliant way, um, leaving the door open, as you have to in any referenda, uh, for people to change their views, uh, you know, uh, avoiding the shaming of Australia and, and the language that can uh, marginalise and divide. Um, and I think Australia is going to come around to it. Um, I think it's going to happen. You, you must be watching with enormous interest, yeah. uh, not just because it's something that you wish so yeah. deeply yeah. to happen, but yeah. also for a learning curve on yeah. how to get a referendum up in, in Australia. Um, what have you sort of noticed so far? Um, I would say firstly that the infrastructure that uh, Thomas and everyone from the Yes campaign have built is very, very important and is based again on what we've seen in uh, in the changes in our political system in recent years, and that is, um, you know, thousands, if not ultimately tens of thousands of volunteers, strong institutional civil society support, and going directly to the people. So they're having, you know, dinner table conversations and all these things, sorts of things. That's incredibly important. What I'm also seeing, and we've, and I find this in the, just the last few months since I joined as chair and now co-chair of the Republic, is that the diversions and the pushbacks, if you like, are pretty much all the same. And I do think that Australia is seeing through them. We've been through those before. We've seen them even in just very recent elections. And so this concept of well, more detail, more detail, more detail might have been OK three months ago. It's not OK now, because Australia's just seeing through it. Right? Because uh, you know, First Nations advocates have had time now. And by the way, they're incredibly brilliant people, hugely articulate. And so they're framing the issue beautifully for us and for the country. And they're able to now. Uh, just pull the disguise off these tactics. 
And so I think, you know, if it was 10 years ago, perhaps not. But I think Australia is able to see through those now uh, in a way that means they're much less effective. There was a couple of no campaigns as well, which I didn't think were well framed at all um, and cut across each other. And so there's a little bit of disorganisation there. And uh, I think the question is ideal and there's been some to and fro around mm. that. So there was some difference in the language, which I think gives, gives everyone comfort um, in terms of you know, non-legal challenges and these things and, uh, and leaving space open for uh, the government to be able to manoeuvre through legislation. And therefore, I think those barriers are gradually breaking down and we've still got quite some months. So I think the trajectory for me is very positive. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, it, it feels... I mean, obviously you're here and talking about the Republic, and, mm. uh, but it does feel for a social movement, which it is, mm -hmm. uh, quiet. It does feel mm. very quiet at the moment. Yeah. I wondered, is there some sort of, you know, curability arrangement with the voice campaigners <laughs> that, you know, that, that you'll you'll bide your time and yeah. um, and and that support will yeah. be, be is that that is well, very a, much so. Yes. Mm. The first calls I made when I joined as chair were to First Nations leaders to say, okay, what do you need from us? Um, where do you see? I know what I think, but where do you see yourselves fitting into this picture of broader independence? Um, how has the organisation come to you in, pre in recent years and how do you feel about how, you know, the language, the narrative, the policies, what does it mean to First Nations? Um, do we need, you know, do we need to do any work for you in order, to, you know, that we can collaborate? Um, and what do you need from us this year? And uh, it was clear from the first moment that um, the most important thing is just respect for space. Um, that, you know, a referendum is hard, mm. <laughs> as you said, and therefore let's not have two at once. And so it's a real challenge to be quiet when, you know, in a couple of years' time we're wanting to make this other really powerful step. Um, but firstly, it's right. Secondly, it's important. And thirdly, um, the Albanese government has done it in the right sequence. Right. And as I, one of the points I made in that press club speech was that we can't move forward until we look back. It's just not possible as a people. Um, until we deal with this, well, some I saw the other day, Julia Gillard, uh, just in some of the research around the Republic, called it the wound at the heart of the nation. And there's been a whole range of different terms used. But we all recognise that we have to go back and talk about this. And we can't carry forward into a new vision of Australia without that. And that was the feedback from some of the First Nations leaders, was, look, you know, we feel as though you guys just want to, you know, cut the monarchy and just go over here and let's go uh, without really dealing, you know, without dealing with this issue at the heart of our national collective uh, um, thinking. And so I, I, I agree with that. I believe in that. I think it's extremely powerful. And the, the point you were making, Sally, before about referenda being difficult is true. And, and First Nations are also deeply respectful because they are carrying the load for educating Australians on their own constitution. Mm -hmm. So everyone who wants a referendum, the first thing you know is like 35% of Australia, the research says, actually know that King Charles is their head of state. So, you know, you're talking about over three quarters of the country who you have to let know this. And mm. so there's this whole education process. And so they're actually carrying that load mm. at the same time as truth telling, which is important part of the voice, uh, at the same time as, you know, bringing Australia psychologically over this line that we didn't want to cross. You know, it's a huge task that they're doing in a number of different ways. That's why I think they're doing a quite brilliant job of it. Um, I love the optimism that you, with which you, you speak of it. I, I think about, I, I imagine in a couple of years' time, the idea that we could have both the voice and for Australia to be a republic as a real, uh, real reimagining of Australian sovereignty. Mm, I mean, the, yeah. these... Um, and then I think about also the, um, the sort of downside of the times that we're living in at the moment, which are... Um, uh, very divided. Uh, we had, you know, neo-Nazis walking yeah. uh, along Spring Street just a couple of weekends ago. Um, that there's a lot of 
tumultuous feeling mm. um, at the moment uh, in our culture. And it, it, it almost feels like a sort of America 10 years ago in a way. We're, we're always doing that cultural kind of catch up here. Um, this, it would seem a miracle. On the one hand, I can't imagine that either of these questions could fail. Mm. And on the other hand, I can't imagine that I could actually be living mm. in an Australia where they took place mm. um, within the next few years. Yeah. But I think that is the challenge. Um, the challenge is to conduct them independently, but of course they're deeply interconnected, firstly. And also to bring Australia along to be comfortable in the majority uh, in an area where we haven't been so often in the past um, on two really fundamental things that go to the nature of who we are and who we were, which is even more difficult. Because mm. uh, we talk a lot about who we are today, but we don't really want to talk about, you know, actually who we were, you know, and the white Australia policy and all of these things. Um, and um, certainly the voice is having to bring, you know, all of those conversations up in any event. Um, a successful voice, I would imagine, and, and of course I'm hopeful, would uh, catapult Australia into a position where we're already comfortable having difficult conversations and we're, we're growing in that this year alone, unquestionably, um, and where we've actually had a very different, much more complex, nuanced and truthful conversation about the Crown. Mm. And if we just talk about the Republic itself and what's happening now, that's really the big change. The change is that today it's okay to talk about, you know, anyone within Australia or in the public domain, to talk about uh, dispossession, massacre, you know, attempted genocide and these things. And we see this trend right across former Commonwealth nations, actually. Uh, and just in recent times, I've been in touch with many of the Caribbean nations Barbados, of course, in yes. 2021 became a republic. And now Jamaica, likewise, Prime Minister has expressed uh, a desire to do so in the next couple of years. And there's six other, so there's seven other Caribbean nations who are wanting to take this step in the next few years. There's, and what I find really fascinating, actually, Sally, is that the Crown itself, the, the British monarchy, is in decline in many ways across the Commonwealth, in terms, you know, post-Elizabeth, in terms of, you know, I guess even the, the basic respect that people have. It or... is succession with horses. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it's, it's actually in retreat, right? It's in retreat at the very time when our First Nations are in advance. Mm -hmm. So I think historically that's incredibly powerful. First Nations are becoming more socially, culturally and politically powerful and resonant within our culture in Australia. I'm not just talking about the art and welcome to countries and acknowledgement. This is real substantive reform and putting them at the heart of the national story. At the time that we're doing that, the Crown, which was responsible for so, you know, so much of the harm and racism that they still experience today, is actually in retreat and in decline. Mm. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It's almost a bit of justice, really, mm. right? Mm. And I think it's perfectly timed. And so we've got 15, including the UK, 15 Commonwealth nations with Charles as head of state still. And in three or four years, you'll have six or seven. Mm. The idea is that we've acknowledged uh, the untruths at the heart of our nation. We've recognised our first peoples one of the most extraordinary cultures on the planet, if not the most, uh, as the history of our country. And we're then saying, we're coming with you and we're going here into our multicultural modern demography. Um, and you mentioned uh, a word before, sovereignty. And what we're really talking about is vesting the sovereignty. So Republic is res publica, is vesting the sovereignty of Australia in the people. But actually the most extraordinary and beautiful thing is we are going to vest it in 65,230 years of history. <laughs> That's an amazing step to take. And again, I think 
It's only going to change us in positive ways. But I don't have the eloquence to be able to articulate to Australia how beautiful that's going to be. Oh, you might, I think, Craig. You'll be all right. I think you'll, you'll get there. Yeah. Bit of time to... Just yeah, I've got some time to plan. Don't polish it too much. I think that's actually the key. Uh, Barbados, you mentioned. Yeah. Um, I was looking at the, how they did it uh, and think about why we can't. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, I mean, they, it was very clever. It was simple. It was a two-step... Um, process. Um, but it seems to me that what you're saying, and, or you'll tell me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. is that it's almost impossible for Australia to be able to have a successful referendum on the Republic without the voice. No, that's not what I'm saying. Thank you. Um, what, what I'm saying is that a Republic has to acknowledge the question mark at the centre of Australian history uh, that the voice is doing. And what we can't have is a republic without having looked back and done what we are doing now. Um, we don't know if the voice is going to be successful or otherwise. Obviously, I'm a huge supporter, so I'm deeply hopeful um, that that is going to happen. I think it's incredibly important for the nation, for all of us. And it is a gift from First Nations people. Uh, Having said that, the sequence can change in future. What's important is that every step Australia takes now is founded on justice and truth. Mm. And that there's only one way to do that, and that is to acknowledge First Nations dispossession and that we have to deal with that. It has to be recognised. It might happen this year. It might happen in five years. But there is no republic without acknowledging that because... As many have said, and I think Noel Pearson rightly said, we don't want just a republic, we want a just republic. The Australia choice model, mm. you've inherited that uh, <laughs> from, uh, from the, the, the movement uh, yeah. that was done on the outgoing, or the, the, the last chair, Peter Fitzsimons. Um, do you like it? You're happy with it? Is it the, the one you're is it the one you would have you would have dreamed up? I like it. Um, I think it is indicative of where Australia is at now. But as the co-chair, what I'm saying to Australia is we have to find our own model. But this is an example of what the research says Australia will feel comfortable with. Mm. So read it, understand the differences to what happened in 99, and let's now have a conversation about a, you know, a unique Australian model that's going to make everyone comfortable, including me. Mm. So in other words, very much, this is the other gift that the Uluru Statement gave us, is that that's a conversation over a period of time. So one of the other elements, we've talked about First Nations and, and history and truth. One of the other elements that's so important in, to capture in the Republic is our multicultural contemporary demography. And I've spent a long time in multiculturalism and obviously sit on the Multicultural Council and so on, having come out of the, the global game, the, you know, the, 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 the immigrant game in Australia. Mm. And what my personal belief is that there is diversity and there is genuine multiculturalism. Diversity is what Australia certainly has oodles of and we're all incredibly proud of it and we see beautiful colours in our streets every day, particularly here in Melbourne, in Sydney where I live and, uh, and it's, a, it's a wonderful place to be. But that's not true multiculturalism because multiculturalism is about equality and the lowering of barriers for any person in this country based on ethnicity, ancestry, faith, whatever those differences are. And that's not the case at the moment. It's so great to hear yeah. someone articulate that uh, in that way. I mean, I feel like if I ever have to interview one more person <laughs> that says we are the most <laughs> successful multicultural yes. country in the world, I'll just, <laughs> just lose my mind. Um, because if we are, then what, where, where is the planet, uh, you know, that we're... Um, it, I mean, it's it sort of... It gets back, in a way, to that quote of yours that I read out at the beginning. There's a strange 
tension, isn't there, in, a, in Australian culture of kind of knowing we're not as good as we could be somehow? Yeah, I think there's many strands of that. Um, the fact that we don't have a great national foundation story mm. or mm. that we've conceptualised or normalised. Of course we do. We've got 65,000 years of incredible history. Like, we have the best story in the world. Mm. Mm. Like we have the greatest story in the world, but it's not part of our consciousness. And this is the, the path we're taking. Um, and therefore, this is one reason why Australia looks to Anzac and things offshore mm. as to the, the moment when some people saw that that's kind of when the concept of Australianism was born. Um, but we now know about the frontier wars and all of these really critically important moments that we're just learning about. And, you know, my generation, you're a lot younger than me, but my, genera my generation, uh, you know, we're, we're devastated that we weren't taught these things in school. You know, I'm, I'm so thrilled that my child is 16, she's in year, year 11, that she's now learning these truths. Imagine that we learned untruths. Like, it's extraordinary. Yeah. So that's why I think a lot of us are so committed to walking this path is because we feel let down. You know, I want to know. And then there's, then there's been this other theory that we were somehow flagellating ourselves by looking back in guilt. And I completely reject that. In fact, I feel incredibly inspired in being able to tell the truth. I feel more whole. Mm. I feel more whole as an, as an Australian. And I think Australia is more whole. Mm. Of course we are. And so as we walk this path, we're learning that it's actually liberating. And we're now free in many, many ways to have different conversations, to tell the truth. And you can feel about it however you want. But we're full. We're becoming whole. That's you know, in in incredibly uh, empowering. So we've been searching for a national story or national stories to make us proud. And I was just reading about the 18, early uh, 19th century, uh, 1800s, and up to the, the birth of republicanism, which was in 1850, basically. It was called the Australian League. It was early, wasn't it? Henry yeah. Lawson wrote a famous yeah. poem about it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. And it was always there. So it was different strands. Mm -hmm. and. Um, it's incredibly sexist, which is why I'm not reading it to you tonight, <laughs> but uh, in other ways quite moving. Yeah. Yes, mm. it always talks about men, mm. men the mm. great men. and mm. men. Eureka, too, of course. Right, yeah, yeah exactly. A, a, a forming point. Yeah, but, mm. that's right. And, uh, uh, and um, you know, taxation and mm. um, representative taxation and the like uh, around Eureka Stock. So we had these, these different moments, but they were different streams and... You know, I genuinely actually wonder whether we've really been ready until now. And that's in part because of the voice. I mean, we could have made it. We could have done it. You know, we should have done it in 99. And, and largely because the Republican movement itself split mm. on what they thought it had to look like was the only reason that it didn't get up, actually. But so we were Republicans at that time, back in 99. Extraordinary to think because 25 years later, we're so much more ready because we understand our country so much better and we don't have to pretend anymore. Like, I'm just sick of pretending. I'm sick of not being able to go into the public and talk about, uh, you know, what First Nations have endured. Mm. And, you know, I think they're, 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 the black activists in Australia and the First Nations leaders are incredibly courageous. Mm. Um, but when we talk about multiculturalism, you know, I see that I see the racism every day that people still and the barriers that our uh, cultural, culturally diverse communities face. And we are the social cohesion index from the Scanlon Foundation does say that around 88% of Australia support or strongly support multiculturalism. You know, or uh, you know, immigration and and the diversity that we have. But when we actually talk to people about what they experienced when they got here and what they continue mm. to experience every day, it's a very different story. And, and by learning to talk with First Nations and actually lance the boil and talk about a complex beginning of the country, we're going to learn to talk about racism. And we're going to learn to listen to our culturally diverse communities. So the gift First Nations are giving us is the, the, the capacity to to listen and to hold several truths at once and to stop this binary mm. conversation. Mm. We have to be this or we have to be this. We're, you know, this is wrong, this is right. No. The Crown and the British tradition in Australia 
is very important in terms of our Westminster democratic system. At the same time, they stole the land and massacred our First Nations people. We can hold those two realities at once. And as I always say, it's not necessary to despise the Crown or King Charles mm. or Elizabeth mm. or the British tradition of Australia in order to be Republican. Mm. In fact, the two go hand in glove. They're, they're, they're completely, they are the same. It is thank you for what you gave. Um, please make apology and reparation over here with our people and we're going here now and you're no longer part of that. Mm. That's all that we're doing. Mm. <laughs> there are a couple of mottos I saw on the um, website for the Australian <laughs> Republic. I didn't build the no, website. I, no, no, that's okay. That'll be <laughs> that'll be redone in much more elegant fashion by the time we we um, we, we get to, we'll to the serious business. We'll be depending on what centers. you ask here. Uh, well, no, I mean, it's uh, unsolicited advice, probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> but there were, two, uh, there were two little phrases I, you know, uh, one, right. one is I, I really hate. Uh, one, <laughs> one of us, one of us for us by us. That's, yeah. that's, that's terrible. Yeah. But the one, I, <laughs> the, the one I really like and find quite moving and co very connected to what you just said is we can take it from here. Mm. Mm. I reckon that's a winner. Mm. And, uh, yeah. and it's, it's sort of there's something, you know, Australian. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a, another phrase mm. in Australia that I wish we'd just banish forever um, is no worries. I, I just, a country that has this as its motto is, <laughs> is never going to do well. We have many worries. I, we don't have to be yeah. totally despondent mm. and not everybody mm. needs to be as grim as mm. I feel about uh, most things. But, but no worries is um, yeah. no mm. help. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, but mm. uh, we, can, we can take it from here. Mm. Nobody's ever going to accuse us of being on the front foot with anything, are they, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> um, we better talk about the the, the politics, the mm, more sure. sort of specific politics. And uh, you mentioned the, the speech you gave in 1999. Mm. I think it was at the Sydney Town Hall. Yes, you were a socceroo. Um, we all, well, most of us can remember the politics around that mm. referendum. And it was brilliant politics from John Howard. Uh, absolutely... Um, uh, stunningly uh, done when you actually convince a country who wants something that they don't mm. want it. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I noticed that I, I was sort of trying to think into the future of a sort of best possible scenario for the Republic mm. movement and that's obviously the voice referendum gets, gets up. Mm. Um, it's presumably preferable that Anthony Albanese wins a second term since he's said he will do this mm -hmm. in a second term. I think it would be very likely if he did win a second election, he wouldn't be facing Peter Dutton and my money would be on Josh Frydenberg having made a successful comeback. <laughs> Peter Fitzsimons asked Josh Frydenberg mm -hmm. before his last budget last year what his views on the Republic were yeah. and in classic form, he said that he loved Elizabeth and he wasn't sure. Oh. <laughs> and I, mm. I think um, things get a lot tougher when you've got that kind of thinking already from somebody who's mm. still twiddling his thumbs in Kuyong mm. um, with too much time on his hands to think of ways to undo <laughs> you. Mm. Uh, so how do you tackle that? Well, uh, I would say that we'll find out this year, but the history of referenda have said, and the 99 demonstrated that when a Prime Minister doesn't support it effectively, you know, you've got far less chance. Because then he can frame the Constitutional Convention in a certain way, he can make sure that's undermined, yeah. he can make sure that the... the, the appropriate conversations happen to confuse Australia and the like. Um, so, yes, a supportive Prime Minister obviously is a given. Um, but I was speaking to someone the other day who, who knows much more about political systems and history than me, who was suggesting that 
in Australia at the moment because of the general distrust of politics per se, that it may no, no longer be necessary to actually have bipartisan support to pass this voice. Mm. And I don't know that, mm. um, but I do wonder about that. Um, I do think we've changed in recent years, the last three or four years particularly, and I think Trump was a part of that. Mm. I think Australia saw what happened there and recoiled and saw some of that coming here and said, we don't want any of this. Uh, and, but in so doing, we were able to see what was happening and, you know, the thinking has changed. Um, and so therefore, of course, um, you know, we'll be seeking support across all political parties. Um, and my understanding at the moment, we've got the Parliamentary Friendship Group tomorrow launched in federal parliament, uh, Tasmania was last week, um, is that support is somewhere around or just under 70% across all MPs in federal parliament, which given that we're not even having a conversation yet, is actually incredibly high. Yeah. It is. Mm. It's also remarkable to me that 30% of them what's <laughs> <laughs> gone on just in the last 24 hours with the royal family is, is, um, uh, is but of course I'm, I'm being a little, little cheeky. naughty, cheeky, thank you, yes. Um, with the, back, back to the, you know, the, the sort of, I, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to get too specific about models because sure. it's early days, particularly yep. for yep. you yep. and, um, yep. but the, the one that's, put up at the moment the Australian choice model yep. as the desired model, a clever one, you know, compromise between the popular election and parliamentary influence, that mm -hmm. every state and territory parliament would nominate one candidate and the federal parliament would nominate three. Yes. Um, which is 11 people. It would be... It, I mean, I'd love to see who these 11 people imaginary people could be that mm. we'd um, get an opportunity to choose from. Mm. Um, uh, things like whether they ought to be allowed to campaign. Do mm. you have a view mm -hmm. on that yet? I am committed to having these conversations with as many Australians as possible. I think, and I think it's clear, that Australia wants... A, a, an Australian head of state um, and what 99 showed and the research says in the Australian model is that they want to have some input into actually electing someone to represent them. And that was a big issue in 99, was that it was seen as, even though it was essentially almost a direct replacement of the Governor-General. Yes. So there really was very little, if any, change. Australia was convinced that this was the politicians' model and not their model. Despite the fact that they weren't aggrieved at the time about the way that Governor-General is chosen or that he is the representative of, of the Queen at that time in Australia. So it just shows the, the challenge to keep these conversations on track. Um, and then there are many, many views on the model. I was talking before about the voice in the Uluru Statement. And what was most powerful about that was the 1,200 people who were involved over a several-year period in the dialogues all around the country. And Nova said something, and we were talking about this just the other day, about the process that we would like to undergo. And she said, yeah, for us in First Nations culture, we call it a family meeting. Yeah. I thought, how beautiful is that? Let's have family meetings all around the country to talk about this. Um, and to explore all the different models. So this, my conception of this role as co-chair is not to sell a model to Australia um, or encourage them down a different track because this is a big conversation for us. I mentioned multiculturalism before. We need to really talk about that. Mm. And that's the next conversation after First Nations. And we're going to be better at doing it by next year. And that's part of it. True multiculturalism means access and representation for every person of any culture in Australia. And that means you can no longer have a foreign monarch as head of state. That's true multiculturalism. In 2024, 25, 26, when Australia stands shoulder to shoulder with everyone who came to this country, as we did, uh, and says, we are equal, we are the same, irrespective of your faith, your ancestry, your history, your colour, 
we are exactly the same, the only way we can genuinely say that finally is by removing the one anachronism at the peak of our political system and our nation. And when we do that, just symbolically, that's profound. Because every person in the country, irrespective of where they've come from or how, they've, how long they've been here, can say, I am respected in the same way that everyone else is. That conversation is a big discussion. It's a huge discussion yeah. and it is vital. Um, and in regards to the Republic, it's, it's really, it, it, it really is important. I mean, from mm. memory, um, migrant groups, recent migrant groups were much more likely to vote to retain the monarchy. Some, some. You're talking back in 99? Yep. Yeah. Some were because some uh, cultures and communities say, well, we come out of disaster. We want stability. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, and we're grateful for what Australia's given us. Mm. And so, you know, and, and plus we don't really understand it to the great degree. Mm. This is why the conversations have to happen. Mm. We're very different from 25 years ago. And I've, in the last three months, I've, one of my priorities to speak to multicultural heads of communities and peak bodies and the like. And those conversations are extremely positive. When we, when we talk about what the, the true face of Australia should be, and that obviously resonates with everyone. Mm. Um, there are always complexities, but that, they're the two important themes from my perspective. That is, we have to look back to go forward, and then we have to bring what we are today with us, but in, in, in a much more real sense. So, I've been speaking to many of our well-known multicultural leaders um, who are in the public domain, and I want them to carry this conversation. So I'm having it here, but I'm not an expert on it. I don't have lived experience, you know. So I want them to talk about it, just as First Nations are talking to us now. I want multicultural communities to talk to Australia, and I want to help them do that. That's the process that I think we need to go through. And if we commit to genuine representation, as we saw in the federal parliament. I think most, most of us were deeply proud when we saw the most culturally representative federal parliament last mm. year. Because we can see that we're finally bringing it to life. Uh, then when these leaders speak to Australia about their conception and about how they want to be included in this conversation of bringing 65,000 years and their contribution, I, I think that's going to be profoundly um, um, successful. Um, you don't have a lived experience of it, um, but you have a capacity to link these huge issues that most politicians like to keep in their corner. Um, uh, you know, it, and I mean. Anthony Albanese at the moment, you can, you're just terrified of the word republic. It's like the, yeah, the sure. word that will not speak yeah, its sure. name. Sure. Um, I, I think uh, there's a real argument for uh, actually these connections being made in this way. I mean, have you had a chance to meet with him yet? Not yet. Not in this capacity. Mm. Um, but we're in Canberra in the next few days. Mm. Um, I understand why he's doing that. Um, in, it's the same reason mm. why I'm very, very careful and, you know, and, and I'm delighted to have this conversation here and I've written a few pieces. But even as the Republic movement, we went out to the popular media recently to say these are the four or five spokespeople. 80% of them are women and from very diverse backgrounds, um, including Nova, of course, First mm. Nations experience and, mm. and with a stolen generation as a grandmother and so on. Um, and, uh, but in that email, in that release to them to saying, this is coming up in five, six weeks' time, you're going to need to talk about it, we know you're going to want to talk about it, here's the people who can speak through their own experience. Um, I was very careful to just frame it, to say, look, this is, this is a moment in time which is critically important. By, way, by the way, I think First Nations are going to be very vocal around the coronation. Mm. You know, you can expect that. And that's important. That's powerful because we no longer have, you know, you talk about John Howard, we no longer have white Australians saying, well, I loved Elizabeth and all of this history, I'm not, I don't want to give it up. Mm. What we've got is very diverse Australians and First Nations saying this is no longer appropriate. Mm. 
that's, mm. that's a totally different conversation. And we can understand it now because we're, you know, in the last couple of years, it is Invasion Day now. That's the difference that has happened in, in the last quarter of a century. What, what are the sort of hurdles or the things at the moment that worry you the most? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't frame it like that. I just mm. think um, at the moment I'm focused on understanding 99 as much as possible, mm. understanding the whole history of republicanism and filling knowledge mm. gaps. Um, and also I, I really love doing these uh, and, and other fora and universities and so on because I want to be put in... This year's really like a free pass, really, to have conversations. Next year it gets real. Yeah, we'll get you back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so next year it's in the public domain, yeah. right, in yeah. a much more real way. And, and therefore also hearing the pushback and, um, and looking at how people are trying to frame the issue in a negative way. That's a big focus at the moment. Mm. And it's pretty much all the same as what it was 25 years ago. It is, well, if we make the change, our entire democratic system is going to collapse overnight. Um, or, uh, you know, why do it? Um, well, we've just articulated at least two or three incredibly powerful reasons why we must do it. Mm. Um, and so if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, first of all, it is broke, and we all saw the five secret ministries. <laughs> <laughs> So that was well-timed, I thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there have been a few yeah. gifts, haven't there? Yeah. yeah, I wasn't distressed that Scott got caught out yeah. there. Yeah, um, <laughs> because ne I neither was, yeah. Neither was Josh Frydenberg, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> because it demonstrated very clearly some gaps in the system. Um, and that's, it was good to focus Australians' minds on that because we'll need to talk about that later in another 12 months' time. Um, but also uh, just to uh, you know understand you know those those types of those types of uh, questions, um, which really go to the nature of basically saying, look, um, we don't want change. We don't believe in Australians, and we don't think that we can design a system that actually you know is going to support our democracy. Which you know it's just it's uh, profoundly ridiculous. Mm. Um, there is some sort of strong. Uh, you know, truth, truthfulness going on, isn't there? And the, uh, the Gary Lineker story I followed with great yeah. interest. It was great. It was, wasn't it? It was an absolute fiasco for the for the BBC. And, Shocking. Uh, uh, and you whipped out a piece about <laughs> it. Uh, you yeah. do write quickly. I mean, this is, uh, you know, you're, you're able to... Uh, you, you're going to be doing a fair few yeah, more of those, true. I reckon. Um, yeah. What do you feel is, um, from your experience, particularly advocating with refugee, for refugees, um, an ability mm. to see things both from here but also from overseas? Mm. I remember you talking about how just profoundly embarrassing it was mm. to mm. be in Thailand yeah. um, campaigning for the Bahraini yeah. soccer player. Yeah, um, uh, Hakeem. Yeah, uh, with the, the policies that were here. And, exactly. Um, what, what have you taken from, from mm. those experiences that are going to help you now? Well, let me tell you, yeah, good question. So thank you. So one, I'll tell you one thing I did take was... I, in the book about Hakim, calling Fighting for Hakim, I made a comment in there where I said, after fighting the two royal families, the Thais and the Bahrainis, um, the Al Khalifas and the, and the Thai king, um, who essentially were just trading the kid, you know, and the governments were just proxies for that happening, which I didn't know when I leapt into the situation. And then I went to Bangkok and all of a sudden, through the language, the diplomatic language people were giving me, I started to say, what's going on here? And then it became clear that actually it was just about two royal families. So I wrote a thing near the end of the book saying if I wasn't a Republican before, I certainly would have become <laughs> during that because it actually gave me an insight mm. into the concept of royalty in a way that most other Australians would never see. And so they exist above international law um, and they could trade this kid using these governments and staying out of harm's way in fact, in Thailand, I think it's 13 or 15 years, sentenced Les Majest yeah. for speaking ill of yeah. the king. That type of law, Australians don't really know, has been the history of royalty and monarchy. Mm. Uh, you know, sedition and speaking against the king, even in the late 1700s and 1800s, 
in Australia and the early convicts, many of them who talked about a republic. I was reading today, there was one who was marched from, I think, Sydney up to Newcastle or somewhere on the way with a sign on uh, with Thomas Paine. Right. Yeah, mm. because he had dared to talk about Australian independence. Uh, and so what I saw there was this, this level of entitlement that Australians don't associate with the Windsors. We see them as kind of this, uh, you know, this, this benign family. We now know, of course, that all the wealth, you know, was, was ripped from uh, slavery uh, in the Caribbean and West Africa and also from our own First Nations people. Uh, but what we see is really a bit of a soap opera. We don't really understand the gravity of it. And I received only a few months ago, actually, a really interesting email which drew those strands together of my experience with Hakeem, my period as a Republican, and now this role. And what this, per this person from, was from one of the Middle Eastern countries, doesn't matter which one, and, and what he said was, actually, what Australia doesn't understand is that all the royals around the world are deeply connected, and they are. So when I was trying to get Hakeem out of the clutches of these two royal families, I spoke to the Jordanian royals. And I almost was about to get in touch with the Windsors <laughs> uh, uh, just prior to we, we got him out. But it became clear that the only way to release him from the clutches of royalty was to speak to royalty. <laughs> yeah. And that says a lot yeah. about entitlement and yeah. privilege. And so what this person said was the legitimacy that the Windsors give to the royal families who are oppressive of their own people and who kill them and incarcerate them and torture them across the Gulf mm. is extremely problematic. And I thought, I hadn't thought about that before, mm. and that's absolutely right. So, you know, the, uh, the Saudi prince and these people go to, well, I don't know what the Royal Equestrian thing is in England, you know, where they do all their equestrian stuff. It's the big annual. Ascot. Yeah, all these things, right? And so they're all there. They're all there. They're all, right? And so what, what Australia should also realise is actually now and in future, until we make this important step, we actually are providing legitimacy to a construct which in its totality is about not just privilege and entitlement and hereditary mm. title, which we always talk about. It's actually very often about oppression. Mm. And increasingly often farcical. Uh, well, that's, that's true. So, I, look, I'm mm. delighted Harry wrote his book. And mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, I mean, the last 24 hours, he's arrived there to have a, I mean, to, you know, go, go stand up to the, to the tabloids, which is terrific. But uh, I, I sort of, I thought, you know, I knew I was talking yeah. and I thought, I'll just see what the king's been up to just today. Yeah, right. and, and it was all, all of it was, um, uh, he hasn't got time to, to see his son, even though he was meant to be in France, having right. a banquet yeah, with right. President Macron, who of course had to Send him back yeah, because he's right. not an actual king. He yeah. still has to worry about that's the right. votes. It's uh, exactly. It's um, well. It would be. It'd be a wonderful thing, I think, to see you and this movement succeed. Uh, I've, you know, crossing my fingers. I see a lot of moving parts. I, I don't think. I don't think any of these things no. are, are, are given. And um, I sometimes. Yeah, we have to navigate through. Yeah, yeah, to find that whatever that op yeah. optimism, I need a little bit of your optimism, but I think there's a few people <laughs> that need a little bit of my concern. <laughs> uh, but um, we'll, we'll see. All the best, Craig. Thank I'm you. so glad yeah. you're in the co-chair. Um, and, of course, we would have extended the invitation to Nova if we'd yeah, known exactly. that uh, yeah. she was... It was only last uh, week. But, oh, gosh, we will extend it to her um, yeah. in the future. It would be absolutely brilliant to get her here. Uh, but thanks for coming and warming the seat up for her. Thanks no, for sharing it. this Thank with you us. Very much. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you all for thanks coming. Everyone. Have a great night. You've been listening to Sally Warhaft in conversation with Craig Foster. 
recorded at the Wheeler Centre on Tuesday the 28th of March 2023 as part of the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate series. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.